Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Dale, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, page 1877. When you come to that, please stand with us. Hebrews 12, 1-24. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not be more subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those whom it have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthening your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom in a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, that a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
Our scripture text this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 12. But I'm going to start by reading a verse from chapter 11, verse 6. The text reads, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. As we come, let us ask for God's enablement. Our Lord, we ask that as we study this scripture today that you will bless us with an insight that will bless our souls. We know that just having the English words in front of us are not sufficient. There must be an understanding and not just of English but of the spiritual meaning of these words and what you're trying to convey to us. We pray that you'll bless us with your presence because without the Holy Spirit none of us will understand nor accept what you've written. We pray for our ill people that are out today, ask that you will bless them with the truth. They're watching through the internet. We ask, Lord, that you will bless that. And we thank you for that uh, technology. We pray, Lord, that you will come close to us, encourage our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So here we have an undeniable hard and fast rule from God that faith is absolutely essential in pleasing God, which, from God's viewpoint, proves that the one coming to God is, God's word, earnest seeker, his word, not mine, and not simply a play actor who's well-versed in biblical jargon, a sincere seeker to know the truth. That said, Jesus on a number of occasions 
addressed his own disciples as men of little faith. Oh, wow. Little faith. Jesus warned against the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples' conclusion was this. Oh, he said that to us because we didn't bring along any bread. Purely missed the point. To which Jesus replied, You of little faith. Why are you talking about having no bread? On another occasion, the discussion centered around clothing as they referenced Solomon's palatial wardrobe. And Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 27, Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you, not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Verse 28, the next verse. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more... Will he clothe you, O men of little faith? Again, when they inquired of Jesus as to why they could not drive out the demons of one possessed, his answer, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from there to here, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew 17, verse 20. And in Matthew 8, verse 20, they were caught in a, on a storm, in a storm, out on the sea, and they awake Jesus, who was sleeping in the hold of the ship. They're full of fear. And Jesus says to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? So it can become so bad that faith becomes non-existent. When Jesus went to minister the gospel to his own hometown, Mark tells us that he could only do a few miracles of healing there because he was amazed, here's his words, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark 6, verse 6. And, and faith can deteriorate beyond that. Paul talks to Timothy about those who have shipwrecked their faith. So they had it, but they destroyed it. First Timothy 1, verse 19. But there's more. Exhibited lack of faith can become no faith. Luke asks the question, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, verse 8. And he is describing judgment day. When Christ comes. 
So which by explanation is too late to believe day. Too late, too late. The account of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16 illustrates a great gulf between the condemned and the justified, thus making it impassable to go from one to the other. The fate is sealed. What is more, if people will not need the message, excuse me, they will not heed the message of the prophets, neither will a witness resurrected from the dead be able to convince them. We have that lived out historically in the person of Christ, raised from the dead. But it didn't change people's hearts. So we ask the question, what are the contributing factors to the absence of faith in people in regard to God and the gospel? Well, the scenario goes something like this. Little faith becomes skeptical faith. Skeptical faith becomes hesitant faith or doubtful faith. Doubtful faith becomes hesitant faith. And hesitant faith becomes no faith. So we're looking at a downward spiral with regard to people and their so-called faith. And the result is that we find what the Bible calls the natural man, Bible's words, not mine, that is man as he is found in the natural world, alienated from God, bound by sin, a slave of Satan, a godless man whom Paul describes as abandoned to, and I quote scripture, a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The bottom line is they end up as a mutual admiration society of sinful depravity fueled by hatred for God and his righteous law that is found in the Bible. Now we read that right in the middle of this catalog of sinful debauchery is the word faithless. Faithless. Yet we, in presenting the gospel call to these haters of God, make a passionate appeal to them to believe without a clear explanation of the origin of saving faith and its holy author. We present faith as easy when it's hard. 
Simple when it's difficult. Simplistic when it is complex. In other words, faith is stripped so much of its godly characteristics that the sinner is convinced that his or her own ability to secure salvation by an act of human will and little in the necessity to submit to God's sovereign enablement, which is so clearly affirmed by the biblical authors. So the gospel has been distorted. For example, Jesus speaking in John 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him... The word in Greek means to forcefully drag a resistant person. Wow. Again, verse 65, same chapter, John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 6, verse 65. We also have Paul's personal testimony. He writes, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What's he saying? He's saying he was devoid of saving faith. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Acts 11 Peter preached the gospel at the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and he witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit upon those that were present there. But he was called on the carpet by the brethren in Jerusalem for daring to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Whoa. And his defense was this, I love it. Peter says, I remembered what the Lord had said. And then he tells us, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us who believed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God. I love it. And those brethren present at this testimony concluded, when they heard this, they had no further objection and praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. We can hear the surprise in their conclusion. Can you believe it? The Gentiles are blessed by God with faith and repentance as were we. There is no indication that these believers in Jerusalem saved people from the Jewish faith. There's no evidence that they operated on the assumption that the faith 
enabling them to believe in Christ and the repentance evident in renouncing their sin was somehow of their own doing. No, the faith to believe was, the biblical record says, a gift. The repentance to forsake sin was, biblical answer, a grant. A gift, a grant. This is the good news of the gospel. And it has always been the good news. And any attempt to portray something different is a false, man-pleasing, pride-enabling denial of the truth which nullifies the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and denigrates His majesty, His mercy, His grace. Secondly, not only is saving faith essential to please God, the Bible clearly indicates that the natural man, that is, mankind as we find him in nature, unchurched, devoid of spiritual pursuits, sold out to sin, an idolater, an enemy of God, the natural man has no ability or desire for a salvation that is humbling self-deprecating and wholly dependent upon the mercy and power of Almighty God. What is more, those confronted with the gospel message cannot accept its call for change nor understand its tenets nor cipher the meaning of its content that is found in the words of Scripture. So as witnesses, we have our work cut out for us because of the culture is not what it was a hundred years ago. We've gone from bad to worse. Our Lord predicted that. And the great apostasy is yet to come. But we are moving in that direction and with record speed. Human nature has not changed for the better. The enemy of men's souls has been busy beaver building his kingdom from sticks and stones and portraying it as an opulent castle complete with gilded cobblestone streets, exclusive eateries with silver dinnerware and the finest cuisine and wine that is available. And he further supplies no shortage of pleasure-pleasing distractions to keep us satiated with costume jewelry, trinkets, so we don't concentrate on trying to find the pearl of great price. Paul puts it this way, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Paul says, they cannot see. And Jesus put it this way, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. 
John 6, verse 40. So, the saving faith which pleases God, according to what we read in Hebrews 11, verse 6, seems to be notably absent. And if it's absent, it jeopardizes the outcome of pleasing God, which is so essential in placating the righteous wrath against our sin and rebellion. Worse, it imprisons us in a sinister world of hatred and rebellion, opposition and defiance against all that God stands for. And it does that all the while keeping, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> keeping us blind to our own self-destruction. <coughs> Think about this. If you can't see your sin, how will you ever repent? Just that one thing. Keep them blind. And I have them for life. Where will the faith that pleases God evidence itself? Thus we discover that faith in God is not easy to do. No, it's hard to obtain. We were convinced of the assumption that it is easily reproduced, but sanity has prevailed by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, and we begin to sense the frightening reality that we are in a bad state unable for us to rectify. And, as sanity prevails, suddenly we are not confident any longer. The smug self-assurance of our own ability to win God's favor and the salvation he bestows becomes instead a frightening reality that we are terrifyingly lost with no lifeline to hold us from plummeting headlong into the abyss of hell. We are in a bad way. So telling people, well, you know, all, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Telling them that seems a mockery to the seriousness of the hearer's plight, and a failure to portray Christ as the regal Savior that he is. Does Christ view such rebellion and failure to obey his requirements of genuine repentance, sincere faith? Does he see all that as, oh, that's insignificant, that's unnecessary, or it's optional at best? Only a fool would dare to assume that God doesn't mean what he says when he says it, and then when he speaks, 
that he's speaking the absolute truth. That being the case, as we broach the subject of saving faith, we have to be careful not to minimize the importance of faith by representing it as a mere exercise of personal acknowledgement of Bible facts, much like we would accept a read from the National Geographic in the lifestyle of lions living in the Sudan. And the way the world uses the word faith does not help us much. A husband is admitted to the hospital with abdominal pains and the doctor suspects appendicitis, but as they always do, the doctors list a catalog of other possibilities. Well, you know, it could be it could be a herniated bowel. It, it, it could be a calcified colon. Well, and you should face the fact that it could possibly be cancer. And the family is told, we won't know till we get in there. You just have to have a little faith that everything will go well. And we'll do our best. Or, or, you've been traveling on an interstate highway for two hours, heading to a family holiday celebration in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and suddenly a warning light blinks on your console, alerting you to the fact that you only have a quarter of a tank of gas remaining. There are no gas stations readily available, and you say to your wife, Well, I trust that there will be a service station soon. Trust, the synonym for faith. So that's what he's saying. And these are all examples of a mystical or magical view of faith. The idea that wishing makes things so. The Celtic sinners on the internet sing, All things are possible if you believe. And Disney's cartoon character, Jiminy Cricket, sings, When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. So you can believe that the remaining quarter tank of fuel in your car will be sufficient to drive another 200 miles, or you can exit the interstate, find a gas station nearby, refuel your car, and resume your journey. And the notion that a quarter tank of gas will propel your car to your final destination is wishful thinking at best. 
but it is also irrational. Because you know from experience that your eight-cylinder car is a gas guzzler that has never gotten that kind of mileage before. But you're wishing that it will this time. Now back to the biblical account. For the Christian man or woman, they have a history, a history of living by faith that began the moment God redeemed them in time-space history when the Holy Spirit opened their heart and their eyes to the truth. And it was truly a revelation. Nowhere found in our psyche. We read of Abraham by faith when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though, I'm still reading scripture, even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11, verse 8. So, he had no prior knowledge or experience with the territory called Palestine, As far as he was concerned, Palestine was uncharted real estate to Abraham. Abraham was from Mesopotamia, 600 miles to the east. The only reason he had traveled the distance and weathered the toil of travel is because God told him to do it. The world would call that insane because it avoided the need for due reasoning, contemplation. They, of course, are not thinking of the Holy Spirit gifted faith, which is supernatural and wholly other to man's self-centered reliance. The notion that if you can think it, you can do it. And here is where God-honoring biblical instruction is absolutely necessary to clear the air and advance the gospel of sovereign grace. We cannot give the impression to the hearer that the faith in God that saves is his or her own willful acknowledgement. Neither Paul, nor more importantly our Lord, poses a humanistic faith that saves, which all men have in and of themselves. To give that impression to listeners is to deny the most basic reality concerning all men and women, without exception. Let me read it for you. For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace. Romans 3, verse 23. And if we couple that with Romans 6, 23, just three chapters later, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, 
gift of God. And to that, there is another added dimension, and that is the inability of the <coughs> natural man to understand the biblical teaching, which is implied in the concept of spiritual death. <coughs> How many functions or abilities do you think dead people can perform? Or to ask it another way, how dead is dead? When life ends, so does performance. Sadly, all of us have attended funerals. Guests and friends file past a coffin to pay their last respects to the loved and departed. They touch the deceased. They even kiss him or her. But in so doing, they are met with a cold and clammy, lifeless corpse. First Corinthians 2, verse 14, says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So that would be called a repentance of sin, faith in Christ as Savior, the works of the Spirit. For they are foolishness to him, does not accept them, and cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned, and he or she is devoid of the Spirit. So even if we called on people to believe the gospel and repent, they would be at a loss as to how to comply. This brings us to my main point, namely, in our evangelism with the gospel, we cannot assume the people of the world understand faith and repentance as being impossible processes emerging from their own nature. If they think, oh, faith, repentance, that, that's easy. I can do that. If they think that, they have missed Jesus' proviso, which is this. Let me read it again. No one can come to me unless the Father enables him. John 6, verse 65. And they've missed the necessary, essential empowerment of the Holy Spirit to grant enlightenment and understanding. So where is the desperate sense of need 
of inability. Where's the wakening reality? Oh my, I am in deep trouble. I, I know nothing about this spiritual journey. I'm lost in darkness. Where do I go to find help? Is there any help available? Modern day evangelism has an answer for these questions too, but the answer is totally humanistic and utterly unbiblical. Even the honest sliver of uncertainty is squashed. The father with the demon-possessed child had pursued all he knew to aid his son, but to no avail. His faith had been displaced and compromised by the charlatans who posed as prophets or as healers in his day. As a consequence, he had become skeptical. He had become totally disillusioned by the miracle workers. So when Jesus asked him if he believed that Jesus could heal his boy, he answered honestly. His answer was, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Mark 9, verse 24. Unbelief? Oh, no, 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 no. We can't have any of that. Uh, didn't you pray to God to heal your son? Well, yes, but, oh, no, no, no buts. You have to believe. Don't doubt God. The name it and claim it gang disallows all reservations one might have concerning answered prayer because they have the audacity to believe that they can command God to do as they ask and he will comply. And when God does not comply, as commanded, they blame the petitioner of being devoid of sufficient faith. They might even use Jesus' words. Oh, your son's not going to be healed because you're a person of little faith. This is utterly demonic. A misapplying of Jesus' teaching and making the lack of healing the outcome of a deficient faith. So saving faith is not as easy as it is often presented. It's hard work because it is so foreign to our sinful nature. We are asking people to do something which is utterly antithetical to all that they are. To exhibit belief in a sovereign God who dares to command us to act upon his say-so and on his say-so alone. And additionally, when we do take his teaching seriously, as found in the scriptures, 
we discover that we are fully beholden to God for the spiritual meaning and outcome of our study. That is, we are at an impasse in our understanding, and if God enables us to trust the Scriptures as truth from God, but stops there and does not enable us the capacity to interpret accurately his meaning, the Bible will remain a closed book. Readable, yeah. But not beneficial spiritually. It would be like picking up a book in the library on thermodynamics. We could likely read the words, the English but we would be lost as to their meaning. Give this a try sometime to illustrate my point. Open the Bible to any clear text in the New Testament, let's say a teaching of Jesus or a teaching of the Apostle Paul. Read it to refresh your own familiarity with the text and then show the same passage of Scripture to an unbeliever and ask them to read it and then interpret what the author is saying. The read will be spot on if the person knows English, but the interpretation will be the wildest, most fanciful postulation possible. How come? Well, they know how to read English, but they are at a loss to cipher the spiritual meaning of the words. This dates back to the fall into sin, where Paul writes, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Romans 1, 21. In other words, they went to idolatry. And let me say that idolatry, whether in a jungle hut in South America or in a classy villa in Madagascar by the blue depths of the ocean, is a fool's paradise. The immortal God and creator of the universe is opted for the mortal sin-polluted imagination of fallen man. God in his loving compassion and forgiveness for sinners is put on the back shelf of the pantry, never more to remain part of conscious reality unless the Holy Spirit awakens him.
Brethren, that's spiritual death. That's what it is. So how may we assist this? We can stop telling sinners the falsehoods of Arminian teachers who teach that saving faith is resident in every person. You just need to implement it. It's there. Rather, we must tell them saving faith is a supernatural gift of God and repentance from sin is a grant from God. Not my words, the biblical words. Both of which are at God's disposal for the sincere seeker. Thus Jesus can say and did say, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Men love themselves way too much. So a gospel, and it's a false gospel, that puffs them up, gives them all this credibility of what they can do to earn God's favor and save themselves, is bogus. And it comes from the liar whom, of whom Jesus there is no truth in him. That's Satan. But he's out spreading the lies. We praise God that he intervenes by the power of his spirit. Here it is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by The word of God. Not just hearing anything, but hearing this book. Having it preached and taught and believed and acted upon. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So if people aren't listening to gospel preaching from pastors that really believe the truth that the Bible is the word of God, if they're not hearing the Bible, they're getting a man-made religion. And man-made religions don't save anybody. They just tie them into Satan's creative knots that will not let people go unless the Spirit of God comes in and breaks the power of those chains. Praise God. God does that all the time. If we're hearing the preaching of God's word. 
Lord, we're thankful today that um, salvation is of the Lord. Because if it were of us, oh boy, would we be in trouble. Because there is nothing in us that desires to buddy up to God and seek to please Him. God to us is, um, well, He's remote. He's He's not like us, so we're estranged from him. But with the work of the Spirit of God, you forgive our hearts and you grant us the faith to come to you and to believe. And wonder of wonders, the Holy Spirit can make us new creatures in Christ. That's why Christ came, your son. That's why Christ died. Not for his own sins, but for our sins. Died to set us free. And then also in all of that, to defeat Satan's hold on us. Seal his fate. Help us to believe. Help us come by your grace to these truths. And we'll praise you for the results in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal 486 in the uh, brown hymn. Stand together as we sing.
know that the faith we're talking about is not faith in ourselves, but faith in the glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did battle with our enemy, Satan, and all of his foes that opposed us. You stepped in, and by your cross, and by your substitution of yourself for our sin, you opened the door to salvation. Bless us with these truths. Help us to be diligent in trusting you and not ourselves. Give us right doctrine. We thank you for the scriptures. We praise you for the scriptures because they say to us the things we need to hear. We're not hearing from the TV preachers and others throughout our land who are giving slippery, silvery, luscious, palatable cuisine for people to come to God for the wrong reasons. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us true to the truth of the Word of God. Thank you for our salvation. Help us to live it, to witness it, to the glory of Christ. Amen. We are dismissed.